The chapter which has always been in front of us throughout this study is now present to us. The prediction and anticipation of the destruction of Jerusalem is now not merely verbal, symbolic, unrealized. That final curse of the wrath of God is existential, actual, realized. The long projected judgment of God on sin in a nation sin in a people, sin in individual Judeans, that judgment has become a horror in reality. A horror of blood, death, carnage, famine, starvation, plague, corpses heaped upon corpses, an end, an end of life for the sinful, hardened in rebellion against God and the word of God, a final judgment. A final judgment for those who perished in the flames, in the death throes, in the mass graves left behind by the mercenaries of the kingdom of darkness. The finality of the day of destruction in Jerusalem is absolute, absolute to those who die in it, absolute in the separation of their souls from their bodies, absolute in the appearance of their disembodied souls standing before the throne of God's wrath in another Jerusalem with another fiery pit of destruction awaiting their eternal souls with eternal torment. The 586 B.C. destruction of Jerusalem is the final judgment for those who perished by sword, famine, pestilence, and fire. And those who perished perished by their own willful choice, a free choice to refuse and to reject the word of God, which is life, life eternal, a willful choice, a free choice to reject and refuse the word of God for certain death, death, which is final and eternal. Foolish willful choices, daring God to be wrong while they themselves dare to be right, daring Almighty God to be wrong and they themselves to be right. We have the temple of the Lord. We shall not die. Such is the counsel of destruction, death, eternal torment, everlasting exile and banishment from the city of God, eternal in the heavens. Banishment and exile from his person with contempt for his love and mercy, such contempt deserving eternal wrath. 
banishment and exclusion from his throne of grace, defiant of his free favor, such defiance as it were spitting in his all-gracious face and earning the justly deserved reward of such scorn, namely his eternal curse and damnation. An everlasting exile from his heaven of joy and bliss and rest for the hellish place where their worm does not die, nor is the fire quenched. Oh, why will you die? Why will you dare God to be wrong while you gamble that you are right? Why will you believe Jeremiah was wrong about Jerusalem's destruction while you are right that Jerusalem was indestructible and Jeremiah was just scaring people with hate speech? Why will you believe the Lord Jesus Christ is wrong about everlasting fire and torment? For three to one, Jesus Christ speaks of eternal torment more than any other writer or spokesman in the Bible. Three to one, the Son of God speaks. Will you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is wrong while you are right that there is no God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son? That you are right that whosoever believes in him is a fool, unenlightened, misguided, benighted by a clever fable, a religious myth? That you are right, you shall not perish? No, you say, perishing is a boogeyman. It is a religious type crying wolf, wolf, when there is nothing, nothing to fear. You shall not perish, because perishing is an invention. Perishing is a fabrication. Perishing is a clever way of preventing you from enjoying the good life in this world. Perishing is a contrivance to rob you of the pleasures of sin. Those, oh, so sweet, delicious, ravishing pleasures of sin. Like the pleasures of the people that Jerusalem enjoyed while Jeremiah was trying to scare them with talk of perishing in their unbelief, frightening them with dying in their sweet, sinful pleasures. While Jeremiah told them, God told them that their last day was near and that that day would not be sweet, nor would it be pleasurable. It would be filled with fire, blood, destruction, death, the separation of their souls from their body and an endless exile, an endless exile from life, from pleasure from happiness, an endless exile because they believed Jeremiah was wrong. They believed God was wrong. They believed Jesus was wrong. They believed the Bible was wrong. 
endless exile because they rolled the dice and bet they were right. The smoke from Jerusalem, 586 B.C., proves they were wrong. Jeremiah was right. God was right. Jesus was right when he reprised the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Twice, two times, God, through his prophet's servants, set forth the destruction of Jerusalem as a portrait of the last judgment, the final judgment of God's justice displayed in history in advance, 586 B.C., 70 A.D., twice, two times, thousands, thousands upon thousands bet that God, through his prophets, was wrong. Once they bet God through his son, his only begotten son, was wrong. They died. God had not lied. They perished because they refused the son of David, whom God so lovingly gave, that whosoever believeth in him did not perish, but had eternal life. The chapter which has always been in front of us is now present to us, even as the reality which is always in front of us is now in these last days in front of us. Every day, every minute of every day, so that we are told not to fear the one who can kill the body, Rather, we are to fear every day the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. Those are not my words, as you know. Not some scare tactic that I have invented. These are the words of the eternal Son of God, spoken in loving warning. Loving warning, I say. Jesus alerting you and me every day that Jerusalem 586 B.C. and 70 A.D. is but a faint portrait of everlasting fire, a mere snapshot, a mere snapshot of everlasting punishment. Oh, how Jeremiah, how Jesus, how I in tandem with them beg you for the love of God. Do not roll the dice. Do not gamble that God is wrong. Do not bet against 586 B.C. and 70 A.D. For you know, after all, if I am wrong, if Jeremiah is wrong, if Jesus is wrong, If we are wrong and there is no hell, what is there to lose? What? What? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. If eternal punishment is a myth, a boogeyman, what have I to lose when death comes? I lose nothing because there is no heaven to lose and there is no hell to gain. 
There is nothing to lose or gain when death comes because there is nothing after death if Jesus, if God, if Jeremiah, and if I, citing them, am wrong. Nothing to lose. Death is nothingness on that presupposition. No life, no consciousness, no joy, no sorrow. Death is nothingness. If I'm wrong, if Jeremiah is wrong, if Jesus is wrong, nada. But if Jesus is right, if Jeremiah is right, if I am right, if we are right, then what is there to lose? What? What? Everything. Absolutely everything. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, should not perish, but have everlasting life. You want to place your bets? Bet on that. Because that's a sure word. Everything else is noise. It is just Noise, the noise of the buzz. Now, as we indicated last time, with our framework bracket between the macrostructure of chapter 34 and 38, and closing the or enveloping the included chapters in between. We note once again this evening that there is a macro structure between chapter 39 and the last chapter of Jeremiah, chapter 52. Now, chapter 39, as we have already indicated, is a chapter discussing and describing the destruction of Jerusalem. Since this is the framing bracket of this macro structure, then chapter 52 in symmetrical parallel is also describing the destruction of Jerusalem. The distinction between the parallel symmetry is that chapter 39 is a fairly concise narrative of the destruction of Jerusalem, where chapter 52 is a very lengthy and detailed description of the destruction of Jerusalem. And we'll pay attention to that when we reach that chapter in a few weeks. In between... Enveloped between the outer framing pattern of this macro narrative are chapters 40 to 51. This section breaks down into three subunits, the first of which extends from chapter 40 to 44, which begins with a nation being prominent. That nation in chapter 40 is the nation of Babylon. But in chapters 41 through 44, there is another nation which is prominent. It is a nation into which Jeremiah descends probably by force. It is the nation of Egypt. And so 
chapters 40 to 44 begin with Egypt and begin with Babylon and end with Egypt. Sandwiched in between chapters 40 to 44 and 46 to 51 is the very short and small chapter 45, which is the narrative of Baruch. Interesting that he is sandwiched in this end of the book. We will deal with the reason for that when we come to chapter 45. But that brings us then to chapters 46 to 51. Chapter 46, which begins this unit, begins with the country of Egypt, God's judgment against Egypt. And chapters 46 to 51 end with chapters 50 and 51, which deal with God's judgment against Babylon. Notice the chiasm. What begins with Babylon in 40 ends with Babylon in 50 to 51. What ends with Egypt in 41 to 44 begins with Egypt in 46. The paradigm of a chiastic reversal and a mirror reflection. Sandwiching Baruch, the servant of the word of God, the reader of the word of God, the preserver of Jeremiah's word from the Lord. Now you will read in the modern commentators the chapters 40 to 52, including 39, are a later invention added by a subsequent editor or redactor with no real attachment to the book of Jeremiah and to his prophecies, save for the fact that it details the end of the nation of Judah. Does this macro structure, which I just outlined, look as if it was an invention? Look as if it was a contrivance? Look as if it was a fabrication by a series of redactors or editors? No. Because it is a carefully arranged and structured paradigm of the consequences of the death of a nation. And as it is so structured, it suggests that which is beyond that death, both in narrative and in judgment. Surely those are the themes of this book that we have noted. In other words, the life of Jeremiah we have described in terms of narrative and judgment. We are not then surprised to find at the end of this book narrative and judgment and that literary construction by divine inspiration, yes, but that literary construction arranged in symmetrical, in parallel, in chiastic, in envelope, in framework, in bracketed style. It is the style of what we acknowledge Jeremiah writes, even the liberals do, in chapters 34 to 38, then why not here? Because their Ph.D. dissertations won't allow them to say that. Or their positions in their great liberal seminaries and universities won't allow them to say that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be welcome at SBL and the other professional societies, which welcome them with open arms because they've got an ID card that they belong to the lobby of liberal scholars. And all liberal scholars believe that the end of Jeremiah wasn't written by Jeremiah, right? 
absurd. Absurd. They give degrees for this kind of stuff. All right. Having justified my ridicule of the liberal commentators, you have any questions about the macro narrative? Well, you caught a hint at the keystone or the pivot of the chiasm that his duplication in the book is a reminder of his role with respect to the book. He is the recorder of the book. And so he has pride of place at the hinge point of the conclusion of the book. The reflection at the center point of this end macro narrative, the reflection upon the one whose pen recorded the words of Jeremiah. I think, I think that's essentially the key to why he appears at the end. I will say some more. I, I, will, I will attach that to why Evan Melek appears at the end of 39. And I'll expand upon that later this evening. Go ahead. Is there any folding of him in the narrative as one as there is judgment on Jerusalem, destruction of Jerusalem, judgment on Jerusalem and the nations? Is there any bearing? That's a good that's a good suggestion and thought. I hadn't thought that far yet, but you're ahead of me. Good for you. Yes. In, in other words, it has to have the whole dynamic of the book. Yes. He's certainly recording it. He's certainly aware of it. So <clears throat> is he himself a virtual reflection of it? Quite possible. Anything else before we go on? All right, now to some of the details <clears throat> in this 39th chapter, beginning with verse 1. We have the phrase that Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah in the tenth month. Now, uh, what would be the ninth year of Zedekiah? Anyone? 488. 488. 588. You skipped a century there. You've been so good with the dates. All right. 588. Now, uh, that might suggest a problem because last week you remember that we said that uh, Jerusalem began to be besieged in January of 587. Now the issue here is the tenth month, which is in this in, in this uh, verse. What is a tenth month? The tenth month on the Jewish and even in the Semitic calendar is the month of December slash January. There's an overlap between the two months. So that we could say nine years, which puts us into 588, but because it's the tenth month, it's also early 587. Okay, you understand? Now, you'll notice that the verse also suggests a potential tension. It says that Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah. Was Jerusalem captured that year? When was it captured, Ben? 586. Actually, a year and a half later, it was captured. So why is captured there in that verse? Well, let's take a look at the rest of verse 1. It's when his army came and laid siege to Jerusalem. 
So what is captured, how is captured being used in that first verse? Because the last part of the verse tells you that it's in this tenth month of the ninth year that he lays siege to it. In other words, he establishes the siege, the third and final siege of Jerusalem, in this tenth month. Then what does captured mean? Foregone conclusion. It's a prolepsis. In other words, it's a word which is a, a prophesying or foretelling what is going to happen. So it's not a contradiction. It's not a mistake. It's a way of anticipating the end which is coming in verse 2. And in verse 2, the 11th year of Zedekiah, the fourth month, the even give the ninth day of the month, the city wall was breached. All right, now what is the 11th year of Zedekiah? Anyone? It's 586. All right. And in the fourth month, we're into June slash July. All right. So we know that it's about a year and a half of this siege from 587, probably late December, early January, 588-87, to 586 and the beginning of the summer. You'll notice that last week I noted on your outline that Jerusalem fell from June to August. Now, why did I say June to August? Because, as we will see when we get to chapter 52, Nebuchadnezzar Adon who is the commander of the host. He's named in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar Adon does not come to destroy the city by burning it. The city is breached in June, July, 586. But a month later, Nebuchadnezzar Adon comes to burn it. Okay, so they breach it. They kill the people that are inside. They deport those that they're carrying away. Then a month later, they burn it. So that's the reason it goes all the way into the month of August for the final destruction of the city. Any question about uh, any of that at uh, at this point? All right, now verse 3 contains an irony. Uh, First of all, uh, you'll notice that the officials of Babylon are at the middle gate. Where is this middle gate? You have a map taken from uh, Don Bahat's. Atlas of Jerusalem, which shows the middle gate as they think it was located. This is a suggestion. It's probably right because it tends to be a majority suggestion that of those that have studied the archaeology and history of Jerusalem. But it is still uh, not permanently, perfectly identified because middle gate here in Jeremiah 39.3 is the only place in the Bible where this phrase occurs, where this name occurs. So it's a hopox. And you'll notice on the map that it's in the north wall, also called the fish gate. You've been able to locate it. Now, this makes sense logistically. Why? Most scholars believe that the Babylonians attacked from the north. Obviously, they came from the north, right? They did not come across the Arabian Desert. Don't bring armies that far across that span of waste. 
They came up the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and then they came down through the Levant. They came down through Syria into northern Palestine, what was northern, what was the northern kingdom of Israel, <clears throat> and they attacked then from the north. Also likely that they surrounded the city. They wouldn't attack from the east because the eastern side of Jerusalem was more arid. So the northern side is more favorable to supplies, so they can take the land, they can take the fruit of the land, they can take the flocks of the land to support their army. This, this makes logistic sense to attack through the north and then to enter through the middle gate, which is on the north wall. Now, the irony here is related to chapter 38, verse 7. And whoever has it uh, first, if you'll just read it out to us. Chapter 38, verse 7. Featuring the ironic juxtaposition here. Anyone have it? It's Evan, Millick, a Christian, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the system. Well, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Okay, so who is sitting in the gate in chapter 38? Zedekiah is sitting there. Who is sitting in the gate in chapter 39? The Babylonian invaders. All right, the irony is that in the very same place that Zedekiah was sitting prior to this siege, now the uh, uh, officials of Babylon are seated And now we turn back to chapter 1, all the way back to the first chapter, Jeremiah, and take a look at verse 15, where the Lord says, At the inauguration of this prophetic call, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, and they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all its walls round about, against all the cities of Judah. Notice, the kingdoms of the north, they're going to set their throne on the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Chapter 39, verse 3 is the fulfillment of that prediction. Now, in this verse, we have some very strange names. They're actually Babylonian names, and there is a great deal of argument still about what they mean. But there are two titles. The title... Rav Shadis and Rav Mag. <clears throat> now, these two titles <clears throat> uh, are also the subject of continued discussion. Uh, they, the terms have not been found precisely in the relationship uh, in any archaeological excavations or texts yet. So, uh, it's, it is not definitive as to what these terms mean. So, your notes and your margins may make suggestions. The suggestion that I will uh, put to you is that Rob Sharis is a high state official and Rav Mog is a high military official. More than that, I am not sure we can say with confidence as yet, in spite of what the commentaries, dictionaries, and encyclopedias say about this. 
when you start to look at the experts in Babylonian uh, <clears throat> language, etc., they're not real sure yet precisely what these terms mean. Now, that could change tomorrow, uh, and I could be not up to date on some of the latest, though I've tried to uh, check this out in some of the websites that I use routinely to stay up to date on the discussion. So, at any event, uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, these are high-ranking officials. Okay, One tends to be more of a state-governing official. The other is a military official. I think that distinction is probably true uh, in spite of what the precise meaning of the terms mean. Uh, it's sometimes suggested that Rav Sharis means uh, king or leader of the eunuchs. It's probably not true. Uh, that's just a guess. Now, in verse 4, Zedekiah fled. What direction did he flee? Did he go north? South? Not really, although that's partly right in some ways. Where is he headed? Notice at the end of verse 4, he's headed to the Arabah. What direction do you go from Jerusalem if you're headed to the Arabah? And what is the Arabah? First of all, what direction do you go? West. Not west. If you go west, you're going to head to the Mediterranean Sea. Eventually. Southeast. No, not really southeast. It's almost directly east. Although you could... You could, in a, say, think, in a way, think of southeast. All right. Let's think about the geography of Palestine for a moment. Uh, this is not true to scale, but I'm going to try to get it closer to scale. Okay, now, that's Palestine. All right? Now, let's label Palestine. What's this big circle here? Anyone? That's the Dead Sea, okay? What's this little circle up here? That's the Sea of Galilee. Okay, what's this squiggly in between? That's the Jordan River. Very good. Okay, what's over here? That's the Mediterranean. <clears throat> what's down here? Egypt. What's here in this little triangle? That's the Sinai Peninsula. What's here in this little spot here, this little finger? The Red Sea? No, the Red Sea is down here. Since you mentioned it, we'll put it there. What's this here? Not the Sea of Reeds. Come on, all you Eisenhower generation people. No, the Gaza Strip is here. This is a body of water, and this is a body of water. Sinai separates these two bodies of water. They have two different names. Come on, all you Eisenhower generation people. Ben? Not the state of Hormuz. That's way over here in Persia. <coughs> Persian Gulf. That's the Gulf of Suez. You remember the blockade of the Suez Canal? Okay. Well, some of you who are my age and older <laughs> should remember it. <laughs> 
All right, so this is the Gulf of Suez. What's this? This is the Gulf of Aqaba. You should always remember the Gulf of Aqaba because that's where the Six Days War started in 1967. That's what's behind all this problems that are going on over there even today. All right, now, where's the Arabah? This started with the geography of the Arabah. Where's the Arabah? Okay, the Arabah is actually a part of the Great Rift Valley. The Great Rift Valley goes all the way from north of the Sea of Galilee all the way down into... Terry? Into Africa, the old Uvai Gorge, Kenya, correct. All right, so it flows actually under the Red Sea and then down into eastern Africa. All right, now when we talk about the Arabah in biblical times, generally speaking, we're talking about this portion of the desert or the desolate region. That is the portion south of the Dead Sea. But in fact, the Arabah includes this whole Jordan River Valley. Now, people don't think of that as belonging to the Rift Valley because the Rift Valley is desolate and arid as it is south of the Dead Sea. And they don't think of that because between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is this very fertile, well, I shouldn't say fertile, this very green and overgrown uh, jungle along the Jordan River. It's about 70, 75 miles between these two, but the Sea of The Jordan River uh, twists and turns almost 200 miles as it goes snaking its way between the two. And as it does, it waters the banks and the regions, particularly on the east side. And that uh, that uh, growth is so dense that people have have gotten lost and died in there. Now, back to why Zedekiah is fleeing from Jerusalem towards the Arabah. In fact, the verse says, um, no, it doesn't. Okay. <clears throat> it, it, what, where did it get him? Yes, in verse 5. It says, it says where he's headed. All right. This is another reason he's headed for the Arabah towards the east. Where's Jericho? It's about there. Okay? So, he's headed towards the east, which is part of the general reason the Arabah. He's headed towards the plains of Jericho, which were probably the step hills just to the west of Jericho. Is that his destination? Is he, is his destination Jericho? Probably not. What's his destination? The country that's over here on the east side of Jericho and the northeast side of the the Dead Sea. What country is that? That is the Ammonites. Now, why do we think he may have been heading for the nation of Ammon? Because of the king of Ammon... His name is Baalus, who will have a part in the next part of the story of Jeremiah and the story of Gedaliah. He's king of Ammon, and he comes into the story of Gedaliah's death. So, it's suggested that because Ammon is involved in this subsequent narrative, it is conceivable that Zedekiah was heading towards Ammon because they were loose confederates with respect 
to the opposition to Babylon. This is speculation, but I think it's reasonable speculation. All right, so one reason he may be heading for the steps of Jericho is to get across the Jordan, ford the Jordan, get over to the east bank, and hide in Ammonite territory. Nebuchadnezzar is probably not going to be interested in pursuing him in the Ammonite territory because he's got his hands full with what's going on in the Levant, in Palestine. All right, that's one suggestion as to why he heads to the east. Okay, what's another suggestion as to why he heads to the east? Hide where? I just circled where he might hide. Jordan River Rift Valley? No, no. What did I circle? No. Right there. What did I circle? The west side of the sea, Dead Sea. Why did I circle that? Who hid there? Who hid there? David hid there. Yes, the caves of En Gedi. All right. So those caves where we also discovered what? Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. There are caves there. Is he heading to the east because he wants to hide in the caves of the west bank of northwest bank of the Dead Sea? I think that's not altogether likely because of the, of the phrase Steps of Jericho. It looks like he's trying to get even away from that. All right. Well, then what's the other possibility? If he's not heading for name Ammon, if he's not heading for the caves of the Dead Sea on the west side, then what else is he doing? Is he trying to get into that dense underbrush on the east side of the Jordan and hide? Remember, it is in that dense underbrush that Absalom met his death because it was so thickly forested. All right. As I said, people have gotten lost there. People have died because they've gotten lost there. So it would be potentially a place where he could just simply disappear. And Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't want to take time to send anybody to chase him down. All right, these are all suggestions as to why he's heading east. Now let's take a look at that map of Jerusalem once again, and let's see how he did it. You'll notice from the verse that he flees by way of the king's garden and goes through a gate between two walls. All right, now you see the city of David there on the southern portion on the south side of Jerusalem. You have to ignore all the built-up walls that are uh, later basically um, uh, developed uh, in in the post-586 period. And just look at this kind of narrow uh, location of the city of David. And south of that, on the uh, southwestern side, you see what's called the fountain gate. You'll notice that that fountain gate is between two walls. The king's garden then is down on the right-hand side below that fountain gate, below the pool of Siloam. Now, this is a suggestion as to the route he took. He tried to sneak out at night. He tried to sneak out of that fountain gate because it's a small gate between two walls and head to the king's garden. And from then, he would go up the Kidron Valley to the northeast and head across the uh, down the down the uh, ascent to Jerusalem and out towards the steps of Jericho. Now, he's, he's circumventing 
in some ways by going to the south, as Ben pointed out, but then he wants to go to the south and then out to the east. And that's the reason I said he is really heading more directly eastbound, even though he goes out the south end of the city. This is the suggestion of the identification of the language here in that fourth verse of Jeremiah 39. Once again, it's not a definitive proof because it's not as if they've dug up these gates and they've got labels on them. Okay, This is just an attempt to reconstruct what the book of Jeremiah, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and the book of Nehemiah describe about the geography of Jerusalem and the arrangement of the walls. I think this is a reasonable suggestion. At least it is a basis for discussion. So if any variation or alteration should be made in the data, it will have to be done in concert with not only the archaeological excavations, which continue to go on there in Jerusalem, but also with understanding the biblical text better. You see the challenge that we're up against. If in verse 3, that term middle gate in Hebrew occurs only once in the whole Bible, we have only this verse to give it any kind of context. Very difficult then for us to understand exactly where it is because there's no wall in Jerusalem has got middle gate written all over it. All right, you see the challenge that, that we're up against. <clears throat> Just means that, you know, uh, until the Lord tarries, we, we hope for more light, uh, partly from the skip spade and partly from understanding the Hebrew terms and partly from understanding the narrative style of what's going on. And that means that we also have to work with uh, Jeremiah in concert with Nehemiah, because Nehemiah, in rebuilding the walls, uses some of this very same vocabulary. Any questions? Now, that's a, that's a somewhat long discourse on why he heads eastbound, but nonetheless, it gives you some insight into some of the challenges of the archaeology and of the narrative, as well as the geography and uh, why he's, he's headed east. I think the most reasonable explanation is that he's trying to get to his Ammonite ally. That's what I think is the most reasonable suggestion. All right, now, uh, one last thing in verse 5 before we take a break. He is captured and taken to Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah. Now, you have a map from the... The Carta Bible Atlas number 163 in your packet, which shows you where Ribla is. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar is laying siege to Jerusalem, and when Zedekiah is captured, he's up there in Ribla, which is up there in Syria. How come the Bible says Nebuchadnezzar is laying siege to Jerusalem? He's not in Jerusalem, he's up there in Riblah. He's the big man. Okay, okay, I like that. He's the big man. He's the overseer. Yes. In other words, he's in Ribla because he's overseeing this campaign, which is bigger than Jerusalem and Judah. You know it's bigger than Jerusalem and Judah already because another country's involved. Right, don't you? You know that other country. What is it? Egypt. Egypt, Egypt comes to attempt to relieve the siege of Jerusalem. So... Nebuchadnezzar is up there supervising the campaign against Jerusalem and against Egypt when they make an incursion up into the Gaza Strip. 
Josephus, the Jewish historian, says he's also coordinating a campaign from Libla against a third kingdom. Is Josephus infallible? No. But Josephus is an interesting historian. He's always worth reading. Read him critically, but nonetheless read him and think about what he may have known, what may have been handed down to him. He's actually using some archives and so on. He's a fairly remarkable historian when it comes to the New Testament period, and particularly we would know very little about the details of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD if it weren't for Josephus. But with respect to this point, Josephus says that he is also coordinating a campaign from Ribla against Phoenicia, against Tyre and Zidon. Now, there's no confirmation of this in the Bible, no confirmation of it from the Babylonian archives. It's just Josephus's opinion, but it does make sense. Why would he be so far north if he doesn't also have troops which are marauding or besieging something else up north, namely Tyre and Zidon? Okay, possible. At any rate, he's seated in Ribla as the supervising commander-in-chief. But he's got his subservient commanders doing the grunt work in Jerusalem against Egypt and in Tyre and Zidon, if that is in fact true. This is nothing unusual, is it? Eisenhower is coordinating D-Day, but he's not on the beach, is he? Okay? Patton the same way. He's coordinating other troops. MacArthur in Incheon during the Korean War and also during the Filipino island hopping campaign. He's not there in the front line. He's got other guys that are, this is the way the, the superior five-star generals delegate authority to others. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's done. He's delegated authority to Nebuchadnezzar and to his other underlying generals. But he is in the place where all of the, he, he, he's in the command center. Let's put it that way. Ribla is the command center. You know, all the Google lines are coming into him in Ribla. Loretta liked that one. Okay. Art, question. Question. Could it, be, uh, could it also be true, since the siege lasted more than a year, that he wants to go down and take a look at how it's going, and so that he alternates time between these two cities? It is possible, and yet there is no passage which I'm... Uh, which I'm aware of, that says that Nebuchadnezzar appeared in Jerusalem himself. He's always there in the person of somebody else. Somebody else is always his kind of ambassador. Now, which is not to see that over an eight, say that over an 18-month period he didn't take an excursion down to Jerusalem. But um, the, the, the saying that Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem is saying that he's the commander-in-chief responsible and he was the, the owner of the army that did the job. Just like the saying that Eisenhower captures Europe, or Eisenhower and Patton capture Europe. They're in charge of the army that did the job. Okay. Um, we'll return to uh, <clears throat> what happens there in Ribla in verse 6 when you come back from your, gate, from your break. <clears throat> now we're down to verse 6. With verse 6, we have blinding of the eyes of Zedekiah and the death of the nobles. And before uh, they put out his eyes, they kill his sons. And so we raised the question of whether this is kind of cruel and unusual punishment. 
but let's keep in mind what precipitated his capture and the death of the city and also the death of his sons. It's his own rebellious act. He broke his oath of loyalty and his covenant allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He had taken a vow that he would submit. And having broken that vow, the penalty for breaking that vow was death. That was the well-known punishment of the time. Consequently, then, this is not cruel and unjust punishment. This is just punishment. You have defied me. You have broken your oath. You have betrayed and rebelled against me. And you know the penalty for such behavior. The penalty is there's no insanity defense. There's no uh, no lawyer that's going to keep you on death row for about 40 years. No, this is instantaneous execution. Now, why does he slay his sons and not slay Zedekiah? Why the differentiation? Why does he kill the boys? They're probably not much older than teenagers, because Zedekiah himself is not old enough to have much older than teenagers. So why does he kill the sons? Mm, he wouldn't have any trouble keeping them away from women if they'd been in prison. So why does he kill them? They're the heirs to the throne? Yeah, but why kill them? Why not just put them in prison? Why not carry them off to Babylon in, in chains? Because you've got an exilic communion, community of Jews in Babylon, don't you? And if you've got the princes of the king, the last king of Judah, in your presence, what have you got? You've got the potential of a fifth column within your own nation. In other words, they'd rally to the princes, and they'd attempt to, uh, to create a kind of conspiracy that might either rebel against him in Babylon or take over the nation, or attempt to rebel and leave and go back to Jerusalem. So he eliminates the potential of the princes being kind of figureheads of resistance to his administration back in Babylon. With respect to Zedekiah, he doesn't kill him. He takes him off in chains. And he actually allows him to die in Babylon. Well, this had been predicted by Jeremiah. Jeremiah had said, you will see the king of Babylon eye to eye. In fact, that's uh, what 34.3 and 32.4 suggest. You will see him eye to eye, but you shall die in Babylon. He keeps Dedekiah alive because he wants to make sure he's got his hand on the principal figure of any potential rebellion back in Palestine or any rebellion in Babylon itself. So, Dedekiah, he doesn't kill because he doesn't want to precipitate any, shall we say, uh, radical reaction immediately to the death of the last king of Judah. Now, if we have time, we'll come back to Ezekiel 12 and we'll take a look at it. But let's move on to verse 9. And to the word deserters that appears there, excuse me, it's not the first time that we've seen this word uh, in the text. And if you turn back to chapter 37, verse 13, although the word is not used, when Elijah confronts Jeremiah at the gate of Benjamin when he's going out of the north gate on personal business, 
He says you're going over to the Chaldeans. So <clears throat> Jeremiah is accused of being a deserter. And Jeremiah responds by saying, you're lying, I'm not deserting. Then in chapter 38, verse 13, the term is used. Verse 19, I'm sorry. The term is used with respect to those who have gone over to the Chaldeans. <clears throat> now, you recall that last week, this verse is crucial to my own construction in the handout from last week about the sequence of events. <clears throat> Namely, when the siege of Jerusalem is lifted at the approach of the Egyptian army, and whether or not the desertion occurs there or whether it occurs subsequently. <clears throat> These deserters know that the jig is up. They know that the city is going to collapse eventually. And so they go over to the Babylonians. I do not think they go over during that uh, siege lifting of uh, <clears throat> Babylonian army going down to face the Egyptians as they come out of Egypt and then returning to resume the siege, uh, I think these deserters leave uh, probably sometime after uh, January of uh, 586. Uh, sometime in the late winter, they start to seep out and try to uh, uh, slip out, just like Zedekiah slips out of the walls uh, at night. <clears throat> All right, so there are deserters <clears throat> uh, referred to, and they had gone over to the Babylonians, and they had gone over very much like Jehoiakim had gone over. Namely, he had gone out and surrendered. Uh, it wasn't that he was deserting. He was simply, as I've suggested, trying to spare the city. But these individuals are actually turncoats. They're going over to the enemy because they don't want to die in the del deluge of destruction that they are certain is coming. Whether they believed that Jeremiah was telling the truth or whether they just believed from the might of the army that was surrounding their uh, their city that, <clears throat> that uh, the game was up, uh, we're not told. But at any rate, there were deserters who did survive. Now, verse 10 is an echo of chapter 27, verse 11, namely that the poorest people were left and uh, notice that the captain of the bodyguard, uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually gives them vineyards and fields in order to uh, survive. Now to verse 12. Nebuchadnezzar had commanded Nebuchadnezzar with respect to Jeremiah to look after him and do nothing harmful to him. Why? Why? God promised Loretta. Him. God promised him. <laughs> Very good. <clears throat> Loretta the theologian. God promised him. That that is true. But is that true for Nebuchadnezzar? God promised Jeremiah, and Jeremiah knew that, but why does Nebuchadnezzar spare him? Don't put that on the tape. She was chewing on buckwheat. All right. You have any suggestion, Loretta, or you want to yield to Scott? Yield. She yields. Scott, was it Scott or was it Pete? I, I, I assume that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, Jeremiah is, is, is saying you ought to submit to me. And, and uh, so he's a, he's a voice for Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the, 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 the clue here is not only does he save his life, but he saves his life in such a way as do whatever he tells you to do. 
So he has heard about what Jeremiah has been saying. How he has heard it, we're not sure, but he has heard about it, which, of course, is not surprising if he's got counterintelligence working back and forth on the lines between the walls of Jerusalem and so on. It's all kinds of gossip coming over those walls, particularly at night. You know, here's this idiot Jeremiah who tells us we ought to surrender. We don't have to surrender. You know, you're down at the bottom of the wall, and who's this guy Jeremiah inside there telling him to surrender to us? Okay, anyway, I'm creating an imaginary tale here, but you get the idea. Plus the fact that obviously he's got people that are able to go back and forth in some way, even perhaps get slipping into Jerusalem through some uh, through the through the uh, Warren Shaft, Hezekiah's Water Tunnel, tunnel etc., uh, and finding out who's what's going on inside. So Nebuchadnezzar is certain that Jeremiah as an ally or an ally in the sense that he's a friend, and so spare the man, spare him because he'll tell you what to do. All right, now, what they do is give him to Gedaliah. Who's Gedaliah? He's the son of a Hikam, as you notice. Who's a Hikam? He's the son of Shaphan. What do you know about the family of Shaphan? Go, go ahead, Marge. They supported Jeremiah. They supported Jeremiah. They. When you say they, how many of the they do you know? Here's, here's Shaphan. He's the father of the clan, right? How many sons? You mentioned three sons. Three sons, correct. One son is here in the text, right? His name is? Ahikam. we know, okay? Ahikam is one son of Shaphan. Who else? Gemariah, okay? Gemariah is a son of Shaphan, brother of Ahikam. Where do we meet Gemariah? Particularly in chapter 36, where when Baruch reads the scroll that Jehoiakim burns... Okay, he hears it read. Gemariah hears it read. And when it goes in before Jehoiakim, as Jehoiakim is slicing pieces of it off for his brazier and burning it, uh, Gemariah, with a couple of others, says, you shouldn't do this. Okay, so he tries to protect the scroll that he has heard. All right, so once again, supporting Jeremiah. And the third of the brothers is Elisah whom we met in chapter 29 when Jeremiah writes the letter to the exiles in Babylon. It's carried by the kind of diplomatic team, and Elisah, son of Shaphan, brother of Ahikam, and Gemariah is part of that group. So this is a, this is a very loyal family. It's a well-established family. Shaphan is a scribe. He may be even the, the chief of the scribes in the temple at this time. He is back in the days of Josiah. And these sons are continuing the loyal tradition uh, to that uh, devotion. So uh, they wear white hats. They're good guys in this uh, narrative. But uh, Gedaliah is the son of Ahikam. So he's in this family line. All right, now, they take him home, verse 14. Where's the home? If you look over in verse 6 of chapter 40, you'll notice that Gedaliah is living in Mizpah, the Mizpah benediction. What's the Mizpah benediction? Marge? Seven rains from Laban, correct. And can you can you repeat it? What's the Mizpah benediction? Very good. The Lord watch between me and thee while we are absent one from the other. Okay. 
<clears throat> the reason older people will know this was because in our Sunday school days, many, many years ago, that's the way every Sunday school class ended. We said the Mizpah benediction. Maybe that was true in your day. I don't know, but it was, it was true in my day. All right. Um, Mizpah is north of Jerusalem. Uh, not too far north and just slightly west. <clears throat> so it's in striking distance of the city that's been destroyed. And obviously, Gedaliah is not going to have his home in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a smoking ruin. Why is his home in Mizpah? Who's Gedaliah? What's he going to become? He's going to become the governor. He's going to become the governor of this region after the destruction of the city. Nebuchadnezzar is going to appoint him governor. So for our next time, we're going to look at chapters 40 and 41 together. So read the next two chapters in preparation for next time. And we're going to look at the story of Gedaliah as it flows out. But here, Jeremiah has been entrusted to him and to his home in Mizpah. Now that brings us to verses 15 to 18. Now verses 15 to 18 deal with Ebed Melech, as you can see as you scan them. Are these chapters out of place? In other words, we had Ebed Melech in chapter 38. That's where we met him as he does what? What does he do in chapter 38? Anyone? He helps save Jeremiah. He helps save Jeremiah from the muck of the cistern. Yes, he probably saves him from death, from suffocation. Well, uh, should this section on Evan Melech be moved over to the end of chapter 38 or put inside chapter 38 somewhere, since that's the chapter where we meet him and deal with him? What do you think about that? Cheryl says no. Why, why, Cheryl? Why shouldn't, it, why shouldn't it be moved over to the end of 38? Because it's, it's, it's where it belongs. It's, <laughs> it's right where it belongs. It's, leave it alone. <laughs> now, I like that uh, because you're right, but why are you right? <laughs> uh, see, now we have to ponder why it is in the place that it is, because there are all kinds of commentators that say it should be moved to the end of chapter 38. It's out of place. It's a fulfillment of prophecy, what? That, that, that Jeremiah's life would be spared. That Jeremiah's life would be spared, but this is Evan Melech. This isn't Jeremiah. Jeremiah's life is talked about in chapter verses 11 to 14. Could be in this chapter that Jeremiah is trying to make a point. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem against those who disobey the Lord. And he could be saying, but look, remember this fellow who obeyed the Lord, the Lord is going to save him. So, drawing a contrast between those who disobey and those who I like your guess, but you've got to firm it up by joining ranks with what Ben is doing here. Now, this is a clue to the two of you to come up with the right answer so that we won't be stuck with Cheryl's stock dogmatism. We can be dogmatic after we understand why. Okay, now see, now, 
Ben said something that can help you. <laughs> it, ben said it's milk fulfillment of prophecy about what? About who? Well, I said Jeremiah. Who means fair? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Is that in verses 11 and 14? Did Jeremiah spared in verses 11 and 14? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He spared. Who spared in verses 15 to 18? Evan Melech. What's Evan Melech mean? You know? You weren't here last week. Evan means servant. That's Hebrew word for servant. Evan Yahweh, servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah. For instance, Isaiah 53, the servant song. Okay. Evan means servant. Melech means king, servant of the king. It's probably not a personal name. It's a official name, or it's a name with respect to his office or function. But nonetheless, that's how we know him. <clears throat> Notice what we've got here. Once again, the liberals are just not reading what's going on in the drama. Are they? Because, as Art points out, we have the destruction of Jerusalem... But then we have Jeremiah spared, verses 11 to 14. And in addition to having Jeremiah spared, we have Abimelech spared, verses 15 to 18. So in a chapter which deals with destruction, we also have a chapter which deals with salvation or deliverance or the rescue of two individuals, namely Jeremiah and Abimelech. All right, now, notice the language of verse 17. Notice the language with which God describes the salvation of Ebed-Melech. He says, I will deliver you on that day. Now, let's turn back to chapter 1. Keep your finger there in 39. I'll get to you, Mary. Let's go back to chapter 1. And whoever gets to verse 8, please read it when you get to it. Jeremiah 1, verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you with the Lord. Very good. Skip down to verse 19. Loretta, read verse 19. And they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you with the Lord. Notice the word deliver. Jeremiah is told that the Lord will deliver him. Ebed Melech is told that he will be delivered by the Lord God. The Hebrew term nasal is exactly the same. Exactly the same in both places. All right, Mary? God's salvation to the Gentiles as well as to his people. He's got Jeremiah saved and Jeremiah is an Israelite. But Cush was from the cursed Good. Yes, there is a Gentile included in this. So, once again, we notice this interface of the future promises or the future actions of God uh, drawing the Gentiles within the circle of redemption. Good observation. All right, now, since the Hebrew root is the same, 
with respect to what was prophesied of Jeremiah, and incidentally that term also occurs in chapter 15, verse 20, which I won't have you looked up, but uh, in chapter 15, verse 20, the I am is emphatic again. We have the Emmanuel promise to Jeremiah, I am with you in chapter 15, verse 20, to deliver you. All right, so this language is consistent. In chapter 39, the whole chapter falls out as a description of the fall of Jerusalem in verses 1 to 10, a narrative of the sparing of the life of Jeremiah, verses 11 to 14, and a narrative of the sparing of the life of Ebed-Melech in verses 15 to 18. The vocabulary or language of deliverance is reciprocal. That is, the same Hebrew word is used for Ebed-Melech, which is used for Jeremiah. Now, we ask ourselves, is this a mirror? Is this a mirror section of closure to the fate of Jerusalem? God's word of judgment is fulfilled in the destruction of the city. God's word of salvation, redemption, deliverance, rescue is fulfilled in the deliverance of Jeremiah and Evid Melech. With the circle of death drawing the citizens, nobles, princes, and king of Judah and Jerusalem into its gaping maw of darkness, the circle of life is drawing God's deliverers into its liberating world of light. God's deliverers. We have a mirror parallel here. Or a mirror reflection here. The destiny of the prophet who is set free, mirrored in the destiny of the one who frees the prophet. This liberation motif is dramatically portrayed in their own careers, in their own story. What God himself declares at first to Jeremiah in chapter 1 verse 8 Namely, I will deliver you, God himself declares at last to Evan Melech in chapter 39, verse 17, I will deliver you. God, the protological and eschatological deliverer, folding down his two beloved servants into his salvation while condemnation folds its willful servants into itself. The mirror is here. The servant of the Lord, the servant of the word of the Lord, the prophet of the Lord is rescued from death. The servant who rescues the Lord's servant from death, the servant of the prophet of the Lord is rescued from death by the word of the Lord through the servant of the Lord's word. There is a mirror here. This is not a mistake of putting four verses out of place. This is a carefully constructed literary narrative device. It is poignant with the drama of two rescued, beloved servants of God. That's the reason it's here. It is the closure to this dreadful story of the destruction and fire which consumed the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah is spared that fiery death. Abed-Melech is spared that fiery destruction. 
The God who delivers spares two of his elect servants. We have then at the end of Jeremiah 39 a finely and carefully crafted literary narrative closure. It is a narrative closure to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the reason we start a whole new story in chapter 40. A narrative mirror reflecting two redeemed servants of the Lord. Two major players in the drama of the book of Jeremiah. Two mirror images of those who stand for life, not death. For salvation, not destruction. For liberation, not subjugation. For the Lord God, they stand for the deliverer whose gracious deliverance is mirrored in their own lives and in these closing scenes of their career. Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech folded into the grace of life, the unmerited favor of no exile, no exile, the undeserved loving kindness of certain rescue. Certain rescue. As if to underscore the mirror symmetry of this carefully crafted narrative, we discover that when we count up the Hebrew words in verses 11 to 14, and then count up the Hebrew words in verses 15 to 18, that both literary units contain 63 words each if I have counted correctly. Now, without suggesting Jewish gematria technique here, I observe that even if my count is strictly inaccurate, is not strictly inaccurate, is not strictly accurate, slightly inaccurate, the word count is close enough so as to give us pause in suggesting that an editor or redactor has misplaced verses 15 to 18 especially. The symmetry in the words count screams symmetry of purpose. Even if I'm one or two words off, it's close enough to be a winner. In fact, Jeremiah himself has placed a narrative here with this precise numerical vocabulary as an intertwined cameo, an intertwined cameo of his own deliverance narrative in verses 11 to 14 and is the fitting conclusion to his whole narrative of the fall of Jerusalem and its immediate consequences. Jeremiah, as if he is saying, you see my servant? You see my servant, Evan Melech? He's a reflection of me. You see me being spared by the Babylonians? Look at my servant who spared me. And look to God, look to God alone who spared us both. For it was God that delivered me from the hand of the oppressor even as it is God 
who will preserve and rescue Ebed-Melech from the hand of the oppressor. Out of place, bungling redactor, editor who doesn't know what he's doing, invented after the fact, baloney, inspired genius. That's what we have here, because what we have here is the grace of God mirroring itself in two of his wonderful servants. And that's the closing of the dreadful horror of the destruction of Jerusalem. And there you have my case for keeping verses 15 to 18 where they are. And Cheryl, you can be as dogmatic as you want now. 